to another edition of Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where it takes a bit more than searing heat and severe dehydration to keep our hero down in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 47, which begins with Max being approached by a wanderer in the desert, and it ends with that same wanderer dragging Max along on a makeshift sled. So when we wrapped up on Monday, we were talking a little bit about how long Max had been wandering in the desert. And the storybook, which is the thing that I found on futurofinale28.blogspot, whatever, that one said day after day, but the novelization had something a bit more specific. It did. It says it was three days till he ran out of water, and then he walked for two more before he collapsed. So he did ration the water. He was smart with it. But there's only so much you can do with a little flask. And it also specifies that he shared it with Sally Ann. Oh, well, that's good. Yes. Keep your small friends in mind when it comes to survival. Good old Max. <laughs> it would have been really easy for him to say, well, in order to keep myself alive, I'm going to have to sacrifice her. Mm -hmm. And many, many people, myself included, I think I wouldn't have faulted him for that. But he seems to have enough affection for her to value her life enough to potentially sacrifice his own to keep both of them alive. Right, because essentially she's the only other companion that he has. Yeah. It's him and the monkey, and that's it. Kind of like how it was with him and the dog. It's just the two of them. She's the main thing that he values living right. thing wise <laughs> so when we start off this minute it's a continuation of the shot that we ended monday's minute with there's a figure obscured by shadow and darkness walking up over a dune and then down towards max's unconscious form half buried in the sand yeah this visual from the end of last minute and the beginning of this minute i found very reminiscent although the reference comes from after thunderdome so i guess the reference is reminiscent of Thunderdome. Anyways, in the very first scene of the pilot episode of The X-Files, oh, there okay. is the iconic scene of the lights coming up over a hill and an individual walking up over the hill being silhouetted and then walking down the other side, mm. which was then referenced in shows like Twin Peaks. It's got a very otherworldly feel to it. I can understand why X-Files would use it. It almost seems like this figure coming up over the hill is not human. They seem to be coming from another world, as it were. It's interesting that you phrase it that way, because the novelization, the reveal of the person, the human that comes over the hill, is preceded by a description of otherworldly vagueness. Mm -hmm. Like this thing is coming over the hill and after a moment they've come close enough that you can tell this about it and then close enough you can tell it's actually a human form so it's very vague what is coming over the hill mm -hmm. and i have a question about this scene what is this light source meant to be is this the setting sun that is a good question because it doesn't look anything like the setting sun no it doesn't look like anything to me no <laughs> westworld shout out right there but yeah 
I would imagine that in the context of the world that they live in, it could be, I don't know, like a particularly bright full moon or something like that. I kind of see it as just a fancy stage effect. You know what I mean? Which I know is not very magical. It's not very otherworldly or anything. It's a very practical way to look at it. Mm -hmm. But I think I would rather have this light than not have it. Like if you're going to have this reveal, putting that bright light behind the dune makes it way better than if you had a softer light one that wasn't quite as far reaching or wide covering like i think that spotlight pretty much makes this scene it does it turns something a little mundane a person walking into the scene and finding another person already in the scene Mm -hmm. it turns it into an event something that's very important something that has a bit of mystery People watching this movie for the first time are probably about now saying like, okay, well, how is he going to get back to Bartertown? Because that's obviously where the story is. Mm -hmm. People who don't know about the crack in the earth and the waiting ones have no idea that this is coming. So to introduce the second part of the story in such a dramatic way is very interesting and compelling and fun. Yeah. This scene also reminded me of something else specifically from Road Warrior. This is another situation where Max has essentially died. Like, he hasn't completely died. He's always alive in these movies. He's never fully dead. He's just mostly dead. Essentially Mm -hmm. dead. And he's saved by someone else from the wasteland. I'm thinking specifically in Road Warrior of that time when the Interceptor explodes and he's in a daze and the gyro captain descends from above and carries him high above the wasteland back to the compound. Here, it's another situation. Max is half buried in the sand, unconscious, and he's found by this figure coming out of the light in the middle of the desert and reaching down, touching him, putting together a sled to drag him with and pulling him out of the wasteland. It's another death and rebirth type of thing. What gave me pause though, when I was thinking about this idea, is that when Max has his near-death experience in Road Warrior, he wakes up, has nothing left, and decides to take an active role in helping the compound dwellers escape the compound. In this story, Max has a near-death experience, and I know I'm probably flashing forward more than I need to, but, you know. Sand. This this minute is mostly someone walking up to Max, so you'll have to <laughs> excuse me. But Max wakes up from this experience, and he more or less seems the same old Max. He doesn't seem to undergo any huge changes of heart initially. No, you're right. And he actively tries to get them to stay. Yeah. And I have to wonder, did he more or less have his big life-altering near-death experience back in the second movie and now he's just done having big life-changing near-death experiences might be the case. I'm wondering if one can have too many life-altering experiences where it just doesn't alter your life anymore. Yeah, I think the main thing with Max's near-death experience in Road Warrior is that it opened his eyes to the idea that no man is an island and that if you try to go it alone, people who are working together will beat you and that only by working together with other people can you get through those hardships. So that's what opened up Max to the idea of rolling around more or less solo, but still trading with people, actively going from settlement to settlement. 
And the two parts of the story, both Barter Town and The Waiting Ones, are about a group of people who are working together. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't seem to mind throwing his lot in with them. In either community, he seems pretty willing to join. Yeah. So I wonder if Max falling victim to the rigors of the desert was a way for them to introduce the waiting ones without having Max stumble upon them and have this weird first contact thing where we're just repeating what we saw with Road Warrior. I like that idea. There are, of course, parallels across all four movies. There are parallels on how things work, mostly because these stories are often centered around the idea of the hero's journey. Yeah. But this transition into a different group of people is done in a fairly unique way. It's not cookie cutter from the last movie. Yeah. In the last movie, Max had to barter his way into the compound by trading Nathan. This time around, he's more or less dead, found, and then brought into the crack in the earth. He's going to have a very similar situation happen in Fury Road, except he won't be found unconscious. He will be actively taken (laughs) and there's no Liam Neeson to help him. So I appreciate the different ways that Max is introduced to these different groups, but I like the way it's done here because he just wakes up in the middle of this group and he doesn't have to necessarily go through the awkward stage of introducing himself and being held up spear point type of thing. Right. He's actually brought into the community in order to save his life Mm -hmm. involuntarily. (laughs) Right. He doesn't necessarily want to be saved by them specifically. They're going to do it anyway, though. Right. And I'm thinking about him coming upon communities and joining communities, and it's often him coming to them and saying, I am coming in for a reason. I have this thing I want to trade. He wants to go into communities for his own purposes. Right. And this time is different. It's involuntarily and it's to save his life. Yeah. What's funny about this minute in particular is that at least in the storybook, it's summed up all within one paragraph where it basically describes that there's this desert figure scurrying through the desert and then they find Max. Yeah, it's pretty much how the novelization does it in a couple of paragraphs. Mm-hmm. That This mysterious figure comes out from the light and... She kind of smells him, Mm -hmm. which kind of sounds a little odd. Well, she she sniffs him on the air, but he's been walking around the desert in leather for the last five days. Yeah, I'll bet he smells pretty bad. Yeah. And in the novelization, he was much more covered by sand. Mm -hmm. Only his head and one shoulder were out. So she smelled him and looked around and noticed an odd shaped pile walked around the other side of the pile of sand and then saw his head sticking out Hmm. this whole idea of max wandering in the desert and coming from where he did and going to where he's going it kind of reminds me of dante alighieri's divine comedy if you see barter town as hell the nothing the desert that he's wandering through as purgatory and the crack in the earth as paradise, there are some definite parallels there. The idea that Max is led through these different stations 
as he goes. I like the idea that stories across the board can be drawn in and parallels drawn, even if they were never meant to be. Mm -hmm. Parallels can still be drawn because these are like the basics of how we think and how we tell stories and how we view the world. It's like it's human nature to see heaven and hell and something in between and situations like that. And it very much gives us connections to other pieces of art to draw them in and find parallels and find meaning and so let's see you said that barter town was purgatory barter town barter town itself was hell the desert is purgatory oh okay crack in the earth it's paradise okay not sure i know enough about the idea of purgatory i mean i know it's a you know an in-between place how you get from a to b kind Mm -hmm. of thing yeah in the Divine Comedy Purgatory is seen as a mountain. Basically, Lucifer fell, hit the earth, created a pit. That pit was hell, and then it was covered over. The fact that hell is a divot in the ground means that on the opposite side of the earth, there's a mountain that was formed by that impact. So as Dante descends through hell, he pops out on the other side of the world at the base of the mountain of Purgatory, climbs the mountain of Purgatory, and then gets to paradise from there. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. It's a lot of walking in that one, too. Yeah. <laughs> Enough of my parallels. Our mystery person spends a lot of time walking down this dune towards Max, and eventually they get to Max half buried in the sand, and upon reaching him, they brush at Max's face. I thought for the longest time that when they arrived and knelt down that they were reaching towards Max's neck to check for a pulse, but... As I paid attention to what was going on screen, I noticed that, yeah, they were just brushing away sand so that they could get a better look at him. In the novelization, she puts her cheek up to his cheek Mm -hmm. to see if she can feel him breathing. And she can't. Oh. He's breathing so shallow and slow that she can't feel it. Really? Yeah. Dang. Mm Mm-hmm. That's severe. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's a good thing that she decides to pick him up. So one other thing about this initial shot, because it is 48 seconds out of a 60 second minute, it's a majority of the time that we're spending with this minute. The music that's playing, I kind of got a Star Trek-y vibe from it. Did you? Well, I actually noticed the music too, and I drew some parallels that I wrote down, but they weren't Star Trek. Really? Really. I got like original series Star Trek vibes. Yeah. Mostly because of the trumpets. I very much liked the music that goes with The Waiting Ones more than the music that goes with Bartertown. The music that goes with Bartertown feels a little bit more harsh. Yeah, darker, heavier. Yes. Yeah. And the music that goes with The Waiting Ones feels a little bit more full-bodied mm-hmm. and like just encompassing, like bring you in. More welcoming? Yes, more welcoming. Yeah. There's a little snippet at the end of this minute, and then there's some more at the beginning of next minute. It took me many, many listenings to figure out what music it brought to mind. I finally figured it out. Oh, yeah? It sounds like the River Lullaby from 1998's The Prince of Egypt. Um, Really? Yes. Well, now I need to go back and listen to it to see if I can pick that up, too, because that didn't even cross my mind. Yeah, it's right at the end. You've got lots of the big warm stuff, and then it kind of drops into a little bit of a melody. Mm -hmm. And that melody is very similar to the lullaby. Mm. And that, of course, was written by Hans Zimmer. Right. So I did a little bit of digging to see if Hans Zimmer 
was influenced by Maurice Jari. Now, I found one website that said that he was, but that website had no references. Oh, well. So. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't count. That doesn't build a lot of confidence when you don't source anything. No. Like, and nobody else said those two composers' names in the same yeah. sentence. Like, like at least reference an interview or something like that. Right. So right around the 48 second mark, we fade to this figure that has found Max and they are walking up over the dunes. They've fashioned a sled that they're dragging Max with, but they're traveling at night doing that thing that you were talking about on Monday. Yes, I suspect that she who has more well no you know what she doesn't necessarily have more experience she grew up in the crack in the earth not in the desert so either she hunkered down and waited especially with this extra load carrying this big heavy man so either she hunkered down and waited or it just took her that long well we know from the initial shot of this minute that she finds max in the evening so she probably finds max continues traveling at night and then is still traveling into the day because maybe like five six seconds later around second 54 we fade to more or less the same shot just during the day so i guess we're supposed to believe that it's a different dune even though it looks so much like the <laughs> previous one it doesn't matter but we end this minute more or less with this figure this woman dragging max up over the top of the dune and then she's still pulling when the minute ends because there wasn't a lot that happened in today's minute we might as well talk about her right now because this is Savannah Nix, played by Helen Bidet. Okay. Granted, I don't know if it's Bidet, Boudet, I don't know. I tried, tried so hard to find an interview with her, where the interviewer said her name out loud, but I could not find one. So, Helen Boudet it is, because, you know, I've only ever seen it in writing, so what's it going to be? Anyway, so Helen Boudet, she was born 1962. She is an Australian theater, TV, and movie actress, and a singer. She appeared as Savannah Nix in this movie, Beyond Thunderdome. She was awarded Best Actress at the 48th Valladolid International Film Festival in 2003 for her role in Alexandra's Project. She was also in 1986's or Love Alone, where she played Teresa, and 2001's Let's Get Scase, or Let's Get Scassi, where she played Judith Turner. That last movie probably either contains a slang word or a proper noun. I don't know. I didn't do a lot of research into that movie from 2001. Getting back to her bio, though, she graduated from NIDA in 1983 and has since become one of Australia's leading theater actors. Bidet has performed with most of Australia's leading theater companies, including roles in A Midsummer Night's Dream, The Three Sisters, The Importance of Being Earnest, and The Doll's House. Bidet is a singer, and she has played the lead role in My Fair Lady, Cabaret, High Society, and The Three Penny Opera. She made her major screen debut as Savannah Nix. So this is the first time she's in a movie uh, where she played the leader of The Waiting Ones. And besides her regular theater work, Boudet has also appeared in various Australian television series, including Land of Hope, Secrets, Water Rats, and Stingers. So she's done a lot of different things, variety. Mm -hmm. You said she was in The Importance of Being Earnest. What was the context Stage performance. Oh, okay. What part did she play? It didn't say. Oh, well. So looking over her top four, let's get Scacy. Uh, Scacy is a proper name. 2001 action adventure comedy, about an hour and 36 minutes long. It's one of those 
crime movies. The movie For Love Alone in 1986, it's a historical romance set in 1930s Australia where a young woman falls in love with a dashing but arrogant teacher. Stars Helen Boudet as Teresa and Sam Neill as James Quick. Hugo Weaving's also in that one, as well as Hugh Keys Byrne, Naomi Watts, and Lyndon Wilkinson. The other one that I mentioned... Alexandra's Project from 2003. It's actually unrated. It's a drama mystery thriller. The synopsis for it just says, a regular suburban family man comes home from work on his birthday to find a deserted house and a videotape waiting to be played. Oh. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I watched a review for it on YouTube. A couple of people, they watched it and they sat down and did one of those vlog style reviews of it. And it sounds really interesting. I'm looking at the movies that Helen Boudet is best known for, and I'm not quite sure which one I would add to the hiatus list. Alexander's Project is definitely more recent, being from 2003. And then For Love Alone seems a bit more like of its era, just straight up drama type thing. A historical romance, as I said. But we got plenty of time before we have to worry about hiatus stuff. It does have the added benefit of having Hugh Keysburn. Mm-hmm. It's always nice to see him popping up in the background. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the cast list for, for Love Alone. And of course, I'm seeing lots of Australian actors, Naomi Watts, Hugh Keysburn. Burn. That makes me wonder, Sam Neill and Hugo Weaving, are they Australian? Well, Hugo Weaving might be. Okay, I can so easily look look up. up. Well, he was born in Nigeria to English parents. So, no. And Sam Neill is American. Irish. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I oh, wait, saw... No, no, he was born in, um, yeah, Omag Co. Tyrone, Northern Ireland. Okay. Yes. I saw Co. and thought it meant Colorado. Oh, come on. That's S- why I said he was American. <sighs> Sam Neill was born in Omag Co. Tyrone, Northern Ireland to army parents and English-born mother Priscilla Beatrice Ingham. <gasps> Yay! And a New Zealand-born father, Dermot Neill. So, we gotta put this movie on the list. I guess so. I, His mother's maiden name is our name. I guess so. I wonder if they're the same Inghams. It's possible. I mean, it's I not know... likely. There's a lot of Inghams yeah. all over the place. There's also a lot of Ingrams, but I don't associate with those people. They throw. I an... know. I know an Ingram family that I absolutely love. Well, you know, I also know a Bingham, and he's a perfectly fine individual. I enjoyed his company for the times that we were hanging out and doing stuff together, but. You start adding extra letters to the last name of Ingham, and it just starts not working right. <laughs> Things go weird. I don't need to get into it. I think we should add for love alone to the highest list. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I can do that. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> that more or less wraps up this minute. I can't think of much else that we can wring out of it. We went weird with this one. We came back to it. We talked a bit about the scene itself, the music, the lighting. On Friday, we're actually going to get to see Savannah up close. She's going to leave Max behind, get a little closer to the camera. She's going to reach the crack in the earth, announce her arrival, and then we'll get our first look at the waiting ones. That's kind of cool. Come on back for that. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. 
Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Ire by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link, join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Minute 47 of Beyond Thunderdome. See you next time. Everybody!